This podcast is part of the Deluxe Edition Network. To find other great shows on the network, head over to deluxeeditionnetwork.com. That's deluxeeditionnetwork.com. Honor the victims, celebrate the heroes. That's Genius Book Publishing's approach to true crime. Covering some of the most important cases in crime worldwide, our books never glorify the killers. From the Melissa Witt case all the way to the Golden State Killer and the Zodiac, if you're looking for solid, meticulously researched, thrilling true crime, look no further than Genius Book Publishing's catalog of titles. Visit GeniusTrueCrime.com for the best true crime books available. Also available on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, and iTunes. I'm LaDonna Humphrey. And I'm Alicia Lockhart. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets, a podcast that shines a light in dark places. You may have noticed something new about our intro today. I am excited to announce that we've decided to join the Deluxe Edition Network, which is a network um, of podcasts and shows, YouTube channels supporting each other. So definitely head on over to the deluxeeditionnetwork.com to check out what they've got going on there. Every month there is a podcast of the month that's being showcased. And this month we're happy to give a little light over to World's True Crime, which is a podcast by Denise and Brad. They're a couple, and Brad is a truck driver that listens to tons of podcasts, and he really likes true crime. Denise is his partner, and he is teaching her about true crime and cases, and so it's an interesting dynamic. Here's a little trailer in case you want to learn more. Hello, we are a podcasting couple. I'm Brad. And I'm Denise. And if you're into true crime, paranormal activities, aliens, disappearances, or anything that's weird or unexplained, then let us assure you, you don't have to look any further. We have all that, plus much more. We release an episode every Tuesday morning for your listening pleasure. So join us at World's True Crime Podcast and download our episodes on all your major streaming platforms. And remember, the world is not always as it seems. No, it's not. So... If you're looking for a new podcast to listen to, definitely go over to the Deluxe Edition Network and check out what we have to offer. Today, we're going to bring you a slightly different sort of episode. We have a special guest with us. Her name is Bridget O'Quillen, and Bridget is the host of the Probably Cancelled podcast, which is a podcast that's dedicated to deep politics, history, and women's health. And one of the major focuses of Bridget's podcast is the goal of exposing the harm that is in the sex industry and how it impacts society today. And we're so excited to have you here today with us, Bridget. And I just wanted to let the listeners know how we met. We actually met through Instagram. 
which I think is so cool. She and I had both commented on the same post and kind of noticed what each other said. And then we all three started a conversation and we immediately began talking about ways we could work together to, believe it or not, stop violent pornography in the United States. So Bridget, welcome to Deep Dark Secrets. We are so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan of your podcast and I'm really excited for this crossover moment we're doing right now. Yeah, it seems like a natural fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited about it. It's always great to meet people who understand and have the same passion that we do and can contribute to this journey that we're on. And you have a fascinating story. So if it's okay, I think maybe we'll just jump right in. Sure. Sounds good to me. So talk to us a little bit, Bridget, about how your life intersected with the death fetish industry. Okay. Specifically with death fetish industry, it's a very interesting one. So I grew up really interested in anything that I wasn't really supposed to know about. I was just one of those kids that was fascinated by anything odd and anything that was hidden from the general public. And so I was also like kind of a goth in my teenage years. And when I was around 19 years old, I decided that, oh, I want to learn everything I can possibly learn about death. I wanted to know all the different ways you can die, what that's like. I think for me, it was also like trying to not fear my own death in a way or understand it so I didn't have to fear it as much or like just so the veils could be lifted on that like secretive aspect of life because in the West, we don't really talk about death that much at all. It's like really hidden away compared to other cultures in the world. We don't really like to talk about it much, understandably. So uh, somehow I found a invite to a website called documentingreality.com and on this website they showed all sorts of death videos crime scene footage crime scene photos morgue photos information about like what the particular case was they had anything you can imagine involving death like car accident footage beheadings it was all there and so i found my way (laughs) into that website to do some investigating at kind of a young age. Can you speak a little bit about how did you get in there? I actually don't remember how I got the invite. I really wish I could remember like who gave it to me or how I accessed it. I'm assuming I found it through another forum and somebody giving out like free invites. Okay, so you have to kind of be a code. You have to be invited Mm -hmm. or get a code from somebody that's already a member then? Yes. Yeah. Only previous members were able to give invites. So it was very closed off. But I, as a teenager, was able to get access in. That's a cautionary tale that we've continued to share with our listeners about how easy we think it could be for people to stumble into these type of websites. And I think this is a really good example. I think so, too. And this is something that when I talk to people about death fetish, A lot of times people will say like, oh, well, that's probably on the dark web. And it's a little bit scary to realize that it seems like there are actually more of these death fetish forums and communities on the surface web than Mm -hmm. there are even in the dark web. Yeah, I've never accessed the dark web. I've never tried to because there's not really much that I want to see on there or access from there. It's like, that's a lot of organized crime related stuff. I was just like a curious teenager. And I also grew up 
in an era where the internet was burgeoning and we had a lot of websites that were just dedicated to gore. So kids my age on the weekends would spend time together like looking at gore and looking at like really messed up stuff that we shouldn't have been looking at. But our parents were not aware that this stuff was on the internet and not aware that the kids were passing it around like, hey, look at this, check this out. So my experience is not even, I don't even think it's abnormal for somebody of my generation, but it was really disturbing. I don't think it's abnormal either. I think teenagers are naturally curious. And I think that we've got these generations that have grown up watching these really scary movies, horror flicks. And Mm -hmm. I think for some kids that they're curious, like what this would be like, and they're not separating the fact that, hey, this is real. It's not like what I saw on Friday the 13th or some of those movies. Yeah, they become desensitized to a lot of it through the horror movies, like you say, I think a lot. And also in the media, our, our media is very gory and bloody because that sells. And they know that it sells. So our my generation is just so desensitized to that stuff that I'm not surprised of what I saw of the way people were interacting with that content on that forum. And I'm curious, yeah. Bridget, when you were in there, did you kind of get a sense for what were the other users in there? I know they were uploading content of these real deaths, but what was like the flavor of their comments or their discussions? Were they saying that they were scared by it? Did they like to look at this content? What kind of community was in there? It seemed to be predominantly men judging from their handles, like their screen names, and also the way that they spoke and typed. Like I can generally get a feel of on the internet if a woman is typing something or if a man is typing it, you can usually get a sense. And I definitely know I was in a male-dominated environment with some women sprinkled throughout who are maybe similar to me, like had a morbid fascination with this stuff or really into horror movies and other teenagers as well. And nobody seemed to be afraid of what they were encountering. Some people were just talking about the case. Like, for example, if it was crime scene photos or morgue photos, they would share information on that particular case. But a large portion of the comments I noticed, and this is how I know that the audience was predominantly men, were people who were making sexual comments about the deaths that were portrayed in, on every page, on every post, and talking about how it turns them on or how hot it is or what they wanted to do to that person or fantasizing about them. And that's the point where I was like, okay. <laughs> When I saw enough of that after a few days of looking at this site, I was like, you know, I need to get out of here because these people are, they're not like me. Like they have a fetish and I am really upset to know that these people exist now because I'm like, I'm scared for my personal safety too as a woman. Well, I think something that you said interested me a little because you said that you think from what you can remember that you got this invite probably through another forum. Alicia and I actually have seen that type of thing happening in some of the forums that we're investigating is that people will go through and say, hey, I can give you an invite to such and such website. And I almost feel like it's that escalation process. The people who are behind the scenes with these forums want to drag the people from the fantasy forums into the reality. 
and vice versa. Mm-hmm. I mean, Alicia, do you think I'm off base saying that? Well, I've always seen those codes or those invites as sort of like a, if you can vouch for somebody, then they'll be offered access into these communities where messed up things are being shared or messed up things are happening. It feels a little bit like a secret club or something that you have to get an invite to to go in there. And for me personally, when I look at a site like Documenting Reality, where they're just really forward about everything we post here is real, and then I compare that to a site like Femme Fatalities, where they want to say everything here is simulated, I don't really see that big of a difference between those. So I don't know if it matters that much for somebody from the real side to pull somebody from the fantasy side in. I think they're all the same anyways, because they're all people who are becoming sexually aroused by these images, or most of them are, it sounds like, on documenting reality. I also think that it's kind of strange, I mean, just to add this, that The people in the fantasy forums and people that are contacting us and harassing us because of our investigation, they'll say, oh, it's just fantasy. This is not real life. But then they also admit to going into places like documenting reality. So I don't know. It's all very sick and twisted. You know what I just realized is that I think I think how I got in and this is related to what you guys are just saying, but I think I got in because I was first looking up not films in general and came across one that was a simulated snuff film made in the 1970s i believe called faces of death you guys might have heard of this one i don't think they really spent that much money on it but it was a fairly popular simulated snuff film in the 1970s it was promoted as being 100% real and the special effects were really realistic. Looking at it, you wouldn't be able to tell that it was all simulated, and it was, besides the like animal abuse that they have in that. I think that's all real. But that movie is infamous for being like one of the first blockbuster snuff films that wasn't... It's not official snuff, but I think I was looking up the history of that, and through one of the forums I was reading about it on, Someone was like, well, here's the real faces of death. Like documenting reality is marketed as the real faces of death. Here's the real stuff. So you were in an online community where people were talking about snuff and they sort of deemed you worthy to go into documenting reality. I didn't even have communications with these people. It was just an open link that was left in a comment on a forum, I think. It was something like that. I wasn't really, I was just browsing. And somehow found a way in. Curiosity got the best of me. Yeah, I'm sure they can't really control very well who gets into these sites. And we've kind of discovered that as well because the people that know we're investigating the websites, they don't want us in there, but they can't keep us out very easily because there's hundreds of people in there with codes and things like that. Mm -hmm. That tracks with what we've experienced there too. They don't want us there, but it's hard to keep tabs on every single person that's in one of those communities. Yeah, that was interesting to me, too, because when you mentioned documenting reality, it piqued my interest because you may not know this, but we have had a lot of contact with one of the key players in the death fantasy world. Well, self-proclaimed key player for whatever that's worth. And her name is Jessica Brown. 
And she's written us emails and has sent text messages and otherwise corresponded with us to tell us that she has a personal financial interest in documenting reality and that she doesn't see anything wrong with that website. Interesting. Yeah, she's interesting all the way around. But that was how we first learned about documenting reality. And then, of course, we kind of learned a little bit more talking with you. So I'm just interested in how that experience impacted your life and then led you to the work that you're doing now. Because I know you're doing some pretty important work in terms of exposing the pornography industry. So tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So I told you guys the story before, but I'll tell it on air again. A few years after I had been browsing on documenting reality and seeing that people have a fetish for this sort of thing, about six or seven years later, a friend of mine, she one day panicked on Facebook and was posting about how her boyfriend at the time had been for multiple nights in a row saying really messed up stuff in his sleep and like physically pushing her in his sleep. And that was so alarming to her that she ended up looking through his phone while he was sleeping and discovered that while he was at work all day, every day, on his free time at work, he would be looking at pictures and videos similar to what you would see on documenting reality website uh, images and videos of women and little girls being killed alongside watching pornography simultaneously and so she panicked and didn't know what to do and for me when I was reading her cries for help I was like whoa this is crazy because I have met that man I met her boyfriend and he was just like a normal guy and I was supposed to officiate their wedding. He just was like a normal guy who you would never suspect had a problem like this. And that was also really shocking to me of how prevalent this issue is, is that it's people that we actually know. It's just they would never, ever for the life of them. Uh, admit this to the people around them. So that was another wake-up call for me. Start there. It's scary. Alicia and I talk about this in almost every single episode. I sound like a broken record now, but I mean, most of these fetishers, 99% of them seem to be normal. You know, your next door neighbor, (laughs) they're in churches, they're Mm -hmm. lawyers, pediatricians, they're everywhere. And that is frightening to me because you just never know who is sitting next to you in a pew at church or across the hall from you at your work, who has this desire to see women and sometimes children murdered. It's really disturbing and scary. And that fuels our passion here to tell these stories and make sure that people understand what death fetish is and how it impacts our communities. Yeah. And your story about your friend too, it really... It makes me think of some of the people that we have traced back to their true identities. And then we'll discover, like, this is a family man. You know, it's somebody who's married, has their own children. Or like your friend, she was in a relationship with this man and didn't know that this is what he was fantasizing about or viewing. It's crazy to think that you could have very intense interests like this and just keep it to yourself for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and she had a young daughter, like a four or five-year-old daughter at the time who was living with them, and that was a daughter from another 
previous relationship. And so you can only imagine the amount of panic that she went through when she realized he was not only looking at images and videos of women being murdered, but little girls also. How much farther can it escalate? Yeah, it's really scary. And from our research into cases that tie back to members of the death fetish community, there does seem to be a significant crossover between child pornography and death fetish pornography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just getting ready to say that. We've seen that many, many times. Did you see anything that indicated that there were people inside documenting reality that were in search of child pornography? Or was that not a part of what you experienced? No, no, I didn't come across much of that. I think I saw one video of a child dying of rabies because I was curious about how that works. But other than that, I stayed away from the kids dying stuff. I think that for me was like a hard limit. So I didn't really read the comments on those posts. But personally, I did not come across that. But there are some posts in there that are videos of children. Oh, yeah. That leads me to probably a couple more questions before we kind of jump into the work that you're doing now. So inside this website, you know, you've got these videos or these photos that are being uploaded. Who is uploading? If it's somebody dying, is it a family member or how are they getting a hold of these videos and these photos to share on documenting reality? That's a really good question. A lot of the footage is from like CCTV security cameras that catch accidents or uh, there are videos that people take from their cell phones of like I remember one was somebody falling from the top of a Ferris wheel. People record these things fairly commonly. Some of it was first person vantage point video of murdering other people. So from the perspective of the murderer, some of it was webcam footage of people committing, like hanging themselves, for example, in their bedroom and broadcasting it live. Really just any vantage point you can think of. I'm not sure where people were getting a hold of these videos from. I know there are many websites online that post this sort of stuff like LiveLeak, for example. But other than that, like morgue photos and crime scene photos, I'm not sure how people are getting that other than from official sources. That's a really good question, actually. I'm curious about that, too. Yeah, it sounds like it could be a mix of all of those methods. There might be an original owner that wants to share their footage, or there could be people that are just collecting this from multiple sources and then resharing there because they know people will want to see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that's basically like an archive. Well, one of the people that have reached out to me through this journey, it was a guy through Instagram, and he wanted to... I think do some shock and awe with me. And so he kept sending me these really gory photos. And anyway, I was finally able to kind of pin him down to get him to talk to me, believe it or not. And it turned out, you know, he started out as a curious teenager and then really just became obsessed with death and dying in these photos and kind of shared with me that he's always, since he was like a small child, had these desires to hurt other people. That's where his curiosity came from because he wanted to do it himself. And he kind of talked about, you know, how easy it was for him to access these things as a young adult. And so that really struck a chord with me because 
that's one of the reasons why we want to raise up an army of people to help us put a stop to this because kids can run into this stuff. Whether they have the desire to hurt other people or they're just curious, you know, we want to try to get that off the internet so that's not even an option for them to look at. That's a big goal of mine and a lot of what I try to focus on with the podcast is the sex industry in general and the way that it's so powerful at this point and the tendrils go so, so deep all the way to like mafia ties, government ties, all sorts of organized crime, like cartels and the way that they target children as well for like the pornography industry is absolutely terrifying. And so for me, I personally got sucked into the sex industry at 20 years old when I was escaping a super abusive relationship. And I know Alicia was in a similar situation within the sex industry, getting abused within it. I heard that episode that you guys did on that. And for me, I was also abused in the sex industry. And seeing, especially since the pandemic, the explosion of OnlyFans, for example, preying upon poor young women, like sexually exploiting them, I decided, you know what, people need to start talking about this and we need to actually have the courage to get canceled by talking about this because it's affecting people in our families. It's affecting us personally and affecting kids like that man who was texting you those gore pictures who was targeted from a young age by these industries to basically take over his mind and take over his neurology and sexuality to become a product on a market that they can exploit. And I'm tired of it. So I'm really glad that I found your podcast because I feel like we're fighting a similar fight. Yeah, I think it's incredibly courageous for you just as an individual to be able to share your personal story through your podcast and to be able to say, like, this is the experience I had that led me to stand up and start being public about these issues that I see with this industry. Yeah, me too. And she's tackling really hard subjects. And so I think that's commendable and brave. And I want to see how we can continue to work together and link arms on fighting together. And I'm kind of interested to hear a little bit more too, though, just about what you've done research-wise to connect that industry to the mafia and to cartels and such. Can you talk a little bit more about that just so our listeners get an idea of what that looks like? Yeah, I can definitely talk about that. Are you guys ready to buckle up though? It goes deep and I want to do it some justice. Do you guys want to hear like a SparkNotes version of how this industry came to be? Yeah, I just buckled up. Let's do it. Okay, cool. So I did an episode on this on my podcast. Thanks to the research of my friend Jimmy. He's the host of a podcast called Program to Chill. And I believe the, the title of my episode is called Porno Mafia for anybody who wants to go back and listen to the whole thing where he goes much more in depth. It's actually really impressive the amount of research that he did on this because this is some really, really deep, seedy, underbelly stuff that you really have to dig to find this information. I'm always impressed at his work. But basically, the advent of modern pornography occurred around the Civil War era when cameras were first invented, film photography. And as soon as film photography was invented, people were taking risque photographs. 
on them. The French, for example, were making postcards featuring nude images and they would be mailed around the world, especially with like soldiers during battle would mail these postcards to each other and they had access to it. So then with the advent of film, like taking movies, one of the first things people made were pornographic films. So it's been around since the 1800s in its modern form. People like to debate how long pornography has been going on for human species in general, like drawings and whatnot. But for modern pornography, this is like really where it begins. So we start seeing hardcore pornography already in existence around the 1910s in like photographic form. And a lot of people, I think they're not really aware of this, but that's how far back it goes. Then around the same time, what's called stag nights begin to open to an all-male audience where these pornographic films would be shown in theaters to groups of men. And it's really interesting because it became an entire culture, so to speak, hidden away from women where men would go and they would watch porn together, which I hear a lot of guys still do today, especially teen boys are still doing that. I just have to add, I think that's so weird. I can't imagine I sitting around with my girlfriends yeah. and watching porn. I just think that's weird. It's so weird. It's also just like, it's funnily homoerotic, which I think a lot of people are in denial about. The psychology there is really fascinating. Too. It really is. <laughs> so by... 1920 to 1950, there was an estimated 2,000 pornographic films in the United States in circulation, which is actually a really tiny number compared to what we have today with the explosion of digital porn and everybody having their own camera in their pocket. It was actually J. Edgar Hoover, the head director of the FBI, who maintained the largest collection of these stag films as they were called and it's really interesting to speculate why that is and it's also interesting to note that the only people who had access to this collection were J. Edgar Hoover himself and his assistant slash lover Clyde Tolson so that's an interesting fact from was he collecting it for himself or because he was investigating it for the FBI it or do we know seems like it was a kind of personal collection but it was owned by the fbi but oh we also, lovely yeah uh, he's also known for cross-dressing jagger hoover was like a renowned cross-dresser so he, he seemed to have his own fetishistic issues going on but that's a little bit of interesting history there's your history list of boys and girls it's yeah, and then jumping ahead to like 1986, the U.S. Attorney General held a commission on pornography. And this is a, a really famous era of time because these debates were held in like live broadcasts on television at the time. And this commission report called for the strict enforcement of federal obscenity laws, which hadn't been in effect up until that point. So this was a huge media event in the 1980s, but one overlooked aspect of the report was the fact that the commission had found that one man, more or less, ran the production and distribution of pornography in the U.S. and much of the world at that point. It was one man Whoa. who nobody had heard of until this point. 
Well, who is this guy? I gotta know. His name is Ruben Sturman, and he's also coined the Walt Disney of porn. Like, if you look at his Wikipedia page, this will be the title next to his name. So that's how big he was in the monopoly of pornography. And so Sturman was from Ohio and operated an international trust of porn companies all across North America, Asia, and Europe. He also produced porn films and distributed magazines. They ran coin-operated peep shows, sex shops, sex toys, warehouses, and shipping companies. He and his operation did it all. It's really kind of crazy because this is in the 80s that this came to light. This has already been going on for a few decades. So Ruben managed to hide his ownership by utilizing offshore shell corporations in Liechtenstein, Panama, and Liberia. And it's speculated that he may have been the wealthiest man in Ohio during the 1980s, but there was no picture of him that existed in the 80s except for one mugshot of him from 1964. Wow, so he was trying to stay in the background. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's speculated that he was totally mobbed up with the Cleveland, Ohio syndicate of the Italian and Jewish mafias. And he was really good at winning court cases. He had so much money, he could hire the best lawyers. So he was just winning back-to-back court cases against the U.S. government and the FBI during the 60s and 70s. But anyway, do you guys have any commentary before I continue on? No, it's just fascinating to learn that one guy could be responsible for pushing this industry to where it has gotten. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Ruben was a dirty, dirty boy, but he was also very smart, clearly. So I'm very floored. I'm sitting here just like, I wish I had some popcorn. I'm like, I'm learning (laughs) so much right now. Well, it gets crazier. I'm really glad you guys are letting me go into this. I'm about halfway done because he seems like he's one guy, but he's really just the front guy for a bunch of guys. You know what I mean? Like he's working with some really shady operative forces here. (laughs) So continuing on, he eventually broke up his company into over 100 different satellites around the country and placed various men at heads of each operation so that they could make jurisdictional issues as complicated as possible for the federal government, you know, with these like obscenity laws that they were trying to pin him on and get him shut down, get the pornography shut down. A lot of more conservative politicians and people of various communities didn't want these sex shops in their communities, you know. So in order to evade that, like you said, he's incredibly smart and the advisors he's working with are like the best advisors you can hire. So he ended up breaking up his company into different satellites. He also expanded to working with kingpins throughout Europe for the purpose of opening up more shell companies for porn production and distribution there. And then in the 70s, he worked with the former bodyguard of the Bonanno crime family to open up a chain of porn theaters. And meanwhile, Robert DiBernardo of the Gambino crime family was operating the porn industry in New York specifically, so like New York City region. That was like a Gambino family project. There's multiple mafias operating going on in different regions of the United States and abroad. 
That's pretty scary so, when you think about that, yeah. that those are the people that are controlling the porn industry at that time. Does he have a family at this time? I mean, does his wife know? This is crazy to me. His wife and his son was working alongside with him in this project. Wow. wow. Yeah. yeah. So Sturman is thought to have been making hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars from these projects by the 1970s and 80s, which is like crazy to think about. There's no way he, as one man, could have managed all of that by himself. He would be not sleeping and like taking phone calls left and right. He's got people working for him. And yeah. meanwhile, the general public doesn't even know he exists. So until today, the Department of Justice secret dossier on Ruben Sturman and his organized crime ties has still never been released. Do we know why? The only thing we can speculate as to why is that there's some kind of information on there that the DOJ does not want out. I don't know if they were getting a cut of his funds or we know that the mafias have infiltrated the CIA and FBI since the early days of the OSS. So we can only speculate why it hasn't been released even after his death. But it's very curious. And it's also interesting to note that his funds, these millions and millions, potentially billions of dollars, were also never recovered after he died. Where did Whoa. they go? Yeah. So now the DiBernardo crime family, who I mentioned earlier, who was involved in the New York City porn game, was also involved in the Rizzuto family, who expanded the porn industry up to Montreal. And it's speculated that they took the porn racket up with them after Ruben's death. So now let's fast forward to present day. You guys have any comments before I move to present day? I'm just trying to absorb it all. I like, I want to know where the money is. <laughs> I know. I have some ideas. Yes, please tell us. This is fascinating and <laughs> important backstory to know. I mean, I had no idea. Nobody does. Most people have no idea. And this is what's so interesting to me about the work I do with my podcast is I just want to follow the money as far as you can possibly follow the money because you will find out that so many aspects of your day-to-day -day life are extremely controlled in ways that people can't even fathom to be true. I mean, this is kind of stuff that people call conspiracy theory, but it's just objectively following the money. Yeah, I was so going to say, clearly we, not if you can find trails of this happening and people working together and where that money is going. Yeah, people have a hard time believing that the mafia and our government work together for a really long time. But listen to my podcast and you can learn a lot about that. But so moving on to present day, we see the mega corporation, no other than MindGeek. Have you ladies heard of MindGeek? I've only heard it from the episode where you and your friend cover this topic. I did listen to that, so I heard about it through there, but definitely go into to who that is. I hadn't heard it before. Okay. okay. Well, I'm clueless, so tell me. Again, I'm just sitting here thinking, wow. Yeah, most people haven't heard of this mega corporation, MindGeek, which is operating out of Montreal, coincidentally, and completely dominating the digital porn world, essentially as a porno empire, 
So they operate and own websites such as Pornhub, RedTube, YouPorn, and they own production companies such as Brazzers, Digital Playground, Men.com, and Reality Kings. A lot of these people listening have probably heard of, if not been to some of these websites or viewed the content from these producers. So they have a stake in almost every smaller production company for pornography that you can think of like in the world. They have hundreds of millions of visits to their websites every day. And in 2018, they pulled in roughly $416 million in revenue. So that's a lot. That's an insane amount of money. And those websites that you mentioned them running, those are the big pornography websites that most people have heard of. They just probably don't know who owns them. Yeah, they don't know that they're connected. They don't know. Yeah, they don't know that the same people own the same sites. Like it, it really is an extreme example of what a monopoly can look like. So it's really also interesting to think about like why are so many of these websites quote unquote free to use? And that's something I kind of want to ask you guys after I finish going over all this because it's interesting to think about. But MindGeek itself, it's essentially a black box. We only know who works at the upper echelon as the CEO because they're on financial filings. But we don't know who is like the executive suite or other positions throughout the company. But the alleged CEO of MindGeek is this guy called Feroz Antun. And he's a Syrian-Canadian who seems to be like a straw man figure to head the company. Very, very, very little is known about this man, Faraz Antoun. But when I was doing research on him a while back, the only thing I could really find on him was like a fake business blog. It seemed totally fake. that he allegedly set up talking about different aspects of finance or how to improve your business. It was like a really poorly constructed blog. And then this picture of a man, this blonde white guy, who was allegedly Faraz Antoun. But when people did a reverse image search on that picture of him, they found that it's actually a picture of a random Swedish podcaster guy who was not Faraz Antoun. Faraz Antoun was just using somebody else's picture as his avatar. Online. That's so weird. So they don't think that he actually could be that podcaster. They think he just kind of snagged his photo. I think he's just using somebody else's photo. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't just use a stock photo. That's what the yeah, fetishers yeah. would do. Yeah. They have to hide their identities, these guys. Like, wow. Yeah, it's really suspicious. So Mind Geek also utilizes anomalous debt structures where they pay like 20% interest on loans of hundreds of millions of dollars. And MindGeek could probably find better financing. The entities that they pay interest to are like capital management funds in New York and New Jersey that you can find virtually no information on. So when you're trying to find where this money for these interest rates on loans are going to, it, they're just being dumped into some unknown other black boxes. Why do you think that is? What do you think they're doing with that money? 
laundering. I'm not sure, but probably other organized crime related things. The main organized crime vehicles are weapons, drugs, human trafficking. And I'll get into it a little bit more of who exactly I think these people are, but they're doing all of those things. And we do know sex trafficking is a huge component to making sure the pornography industry runs at all. So I'm not sure exactly where the money's going. Maybe it's for bribes for the government to allow them to continue to be functioning. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's not hard to imagine funding going that direction or, you know, just to keep this big ring of crime going on. They they might have to pay off some people or just pay the people that are doing dirty deeds with them. Yep. Wow, that's really scary and, I mean, mind-blowing. And I wonder about the human trafficking aspect. So at what level is some of this funding actual snuff films? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I have a lot of questions of where this money is going to and just how these sites are allowed to continue to exist in general, because there's a lot of footage of sex trafficking victims on these websites for people to jerk off to. So and it just is it just continues to stay up and they're making money off of it. So, well, it's disgusting. And it it makes me wonder, too, how much people are making off of like death fetish pornography, too. I would think a bunch of money is to be had as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, too, your random web surfer who's looking for free pornography, they may not even realize that they're watching videos of trafficked women. A lot of those videos likely are people that are in sex trafficking. And I think that, as you mentioned before, Bridget, these videos are free and there isn't a lot of thought for the consumer as to why that is no no it's just people want the instant gratification and it's really it's really disturbing i could talk about this just pornography in general all day but the way that especially young kids are groomed into it and then the method of escalation of you know going from watching one seemingly innocent like softcore porn to stuff involving asphyxiation, to then moving on to BDSM, to then more and more extreme versions of BDSM, to like simulated snuff to actual snuff. It really is a pipeline. And at this point, they're luring kids in with anime porn. You know, it's like candy cigarettes for kids. So I won't go off onto that realm because I could talk about that forever. Maybe offline we can talk about that because I was actually reading some things about that not very long ago. I like the way you described it. It is a pipeline, you know, and it just Mm -hmm. ushers you from point A to point B and further on down the road, which leads to people getting killed. And that's Mm -hmm. why we're so passionate about these topics and desperate to find ways to join with other people like yourself so we can make a dent in what we see that's happening. It's got to stop. So many women have died so far because of the death fetish industry. It's heartbreaking and it's sick over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we know that serial killers have a really, really, really high rate for also being severe porn addicts. Like there is a direct link to the two. Oh, for sure. Ted Bundy, I think he talks pretty openly or he did talk mm-hmm. openly about that link. Yeah, he did. 
And so it's really yeah. interesting to be able to hear a firsthand account of, you know, somebody saying this was a problem for me and it absolutely is related to my lust to kill people. Yeah, well, I think we could sit here and talk to you all day. Honestly, this is fascinating to me. And I think it's a good insight into just how big and dangerous this industry is and what we're up against. But I know that we do have to start winding down because we've got limited time. But one of the things I wanted to ask you is because you've kind of joined with us and we're trying to find ways to work together and because you have your own podcast, I'm just curious to see if you would be interested in talking more about death fetish on your podcast and maybe even talking to some of the death fetishers on your podcast if they won't come on ours. Yeah, I'm open to talking to anybody, any cancelable person. I will talk to them. And I'm also just really interested in the psychology behind all of this. So anybody who would like to come on and talk with us, I think that would be great. I'm open to it. Alicia, you know who would be a good guest for her show? Bridget, as soon as you said the psychology, I had a fetisher in mind for you. There's a guy named Raphael who is not willing to talk to LaDonna and I. He thinks that we're volatile bullies, but maybe he'll find you more palatable. Maybe. I don't know. He's one of our biggest promoters for us. He's a <laughs> great big fan. He's over on Twitter. So you might check him out and invite him on your show because he's all about the psychology of death fetish. So that might be interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I'm sure it's something that I haven't heard before, but he can shoot a shot. Before I go, can I give you guys one more interesting fact about this Frost Antune guy? Because I, yes. I just, the, the best is really for last. You guys want to hear this? Yeah. Okay, so on April 25th of 2021, so not that long ago, the $16 million mansion of MindGeek CEO Feroz Antoon mysteriously burned down in Montreal. The mansion itself was located in Montreal's quote-unquote Mafia Row, which is where the Rizzuto crime family used to live. And he also was living in a mansion that happened to be previously inhabited by Nick Rizzuto and other members of that particular mafia crime family. This Nick Rizzuto guy was also sniped down in that mansion and killed in 2010. So the CEO of MindGeek, the guy who owns Pornhub, RedTube, YouPorn, all that, Brazzers, all that, is literally just straight up mobbed up. Like, I don't know how much more proof we need other than that. Wow. But I'm just, to tie it all in with the death fetish stuff, it's all the same industry. They're all being financed by these people. So that's just, for your listeners, a really interesting aspect of where the money goes in this industry. Yeah, that's super scary to think of that many people you know, high power people, violent people, big rings of people that, as we said, are involved in all sorts of organized crime. They're the ones mm -hmm. who are running this. And so if you're watching this content, if you're searching for the content and downloading it or purchasing videos, you're supporting this big, terrible group of people. It's yep, awful. They, they might have your own sexuality completely hijacked from you at this point, if you're watching that stuff. So it's important to be aware of. Wow. 
I could talk about this for ages. Like it goes crazy directions like psychological operations, social engineering, transhumanism with the VR and deepfakes AI stuff. Like I could go deeper and deeper, but I'll stop here for your guys' episode. Well, yeah, I think this is a good intro to some of the wisdom and research that you've done. And we would just recommend that if you were listening today and this really wet your whistle, you definitely want to go over to Bridget's podcast, which again is called Probably Cancelled. Bridget, can you let our listeners know how they can find you? Yeah, definitely. It's Probably Cancelled podcast that's cancelled with two L's. And you can listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else. You can listen to podcasts. There's another one that exists that's like two libertarian guys, I think. <laughs> so that's not me. But I'm like, should I reach out to them to do a collab with them? Because <laughs> that would be kind of that funny. would be pretty funny. You have you talked to them ever? No, no, but I should. I haven't listened to their podcast, but I should give it a try. But I'm also on Patreon if you want to support my work. I don't really make money from the work that I do. It's kind of just like a passion side project. But if you do want to support, you can go to patreon.com slash probably canceled pod. That's again, canceled with two L's. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. You can find me and follow me. And I post a lot of stuff related to my work or anything that I find that I think is interesting and want to share with other people. But those are the main ways that you can find me. Awesome. Thank you so much. We definitely recommend you go listen to the episodes there. And how often do you post new episodes? About every two weeks. But I'm hoping to do more frequently now and also get into some streaming as well. Nice. Yeah. Well, it's been so great to have you. Thank you so much for your time. And we just think that you're a force of a woman and we're like really happy to know you and to be able to collaborate with you. Yeah, absolutely. Bridget, thank you for being here today. We are anxious to find ways to work with you in the future as we continue this quest to stop the death fetish industry. And now maybe to get some answers in the pornography industry in general. I mean, my interest is peaked. But I hope the listeners have enjoyed this episode and be sure to tune in next week as we continue our battle against the death fetish industry in America. As usual, if you have a secret that you'd like us to expose, go ahead and whisper it to us on our website at deepdarksecretspodcast.com. We look forward to hearing from you. And until then, remember to keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash deepdarksecrets. Sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode.